Hello and welcome back to the Three Vice Men podcast. Back this week with another episode. And Dom, Dom Lewis, you're joining me, James Curtis. It was another knowledgeable and exciting episode. Yeah, I've got a few episodes that we've done where I feel like I learned a lot in that one. And this definitely ticks those boxes. So get your notepads at the ready, I would say. Well, for those of you who have not read the episode title, and actually please let me know what it was because I'm not sure what we're going to title this. But it's a crossover episode. It we've is. Had, yeah, we've had a crossover blendery on. And blendery, an interesting one, not a brewery. Yeah, definite distinction that I didn't really think about until we started talking about it. So, um, yeah, it's good to have that clarified. Yeah, I, I hate to think how many times I called them a brewery after the start of the conversation saying, you're not a brewery, you're a blendery. Because that is really where their USP and their distinction comes from, isn't it? Yeah, I've got to say, it did produce some really interesting beers with some really interesting names. I didn't have a beer named after a cloud on my 2023 bingo car, but I've just ticked that off now. Well, that's the high-level thinking that you have to come to expect when you come to a, a blendery that makes such uh, exciting stuff. I mean, to come out with a berry that I've not heard of, I mean, they've not created the berry, they've just used it. But, you know, I thought I knew all the berries at this point. Yeah, I mean, you learn something new every day and... I mean, the listeners are probably going to learn something during the next hour and a half. Well, in that case, they'd better stick around and listen then. Uh, we have a fantastic episode for you. Uh, and here from Crossover Blendery is all of the knowledge you'll ever need about wild and naturally, spontaneously fermented beer. Enjoy. Uh, hi, George. Thanks for joining us. Uh it's uh, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this one. Obviously, crossover blendery, a very exciting uh, beer maker. I wanted to say brewery. Then is that is that a, an off limits term? Does it does it still count? Yeah. Well, we we never refer to ourselves as a brewery, but we've got we've just opened our tap room and we've put a massive sign on the road that says brewery tap room because <laughs> no one knows what a blendery is. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess we make beer. That's the that's the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, as you make such interesting beer, I thought we'll kick things off with the uh, the core lager. No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got a barbarian I, lamb. I wish we made a core lager. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd we'll love to, to see your take on it. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll jump into that later. But while we're pouring this one out, can you give us a bit brief rundown of barbarian lands? Yeah, sure. So it's um it's actually the second uh, iteration or second blend of barbarian lands. Um, so that's Barbarian Lands 2022, the first one we did with 2021. It's a beer that's based around uh, rhubarb, uh, British rhubarb. We, we only use British fruit, so I mean, rhubarb's a vegetable, but these ingredients we add are, are, are always British. Um, that, that one is a, a blend of 18 and 30 month old golden ales. So uh, for want of a better name of our beer, we call it a golden ale. Uh, it's, uh, brewed with malted barley and raw wheat um, we actually follow uh, lambic recipes fairly closely although we do play around with the grain bill quite a lot uh, but most of what we do is malted barley and raw wheat uh, so it was aged in barrel for 18 and 30 months so uh, we blend everything we do so that's um, that's made up of multiple barrels that, that went into the blend uh, but the beer is centered around rhubarb. So uh, it was re-fermented on Timpley Early, which is, is quite a common variety of, of rhubarb. You can get forced Timpley Early and then kind of conventional Timpley Early. Um, it's an early season rhubarb. 
um, after after the full season finishes. Uh, we got it from a farm in Worcestershire uh, called Stein Family Produce. We get a lot of our farm from from them. Uh, they're fantastic people, and they've got great fruit and great vegetables. So yeah, it's a, a, a rhubarb beer. It's you know definitely involves. Uh, some older beer compared to our, our first iteration of Barbarian Lands. I, I really like it. It's 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 lighter in ABV. It's only four point seven percent, but it has a lovely uh, soft acidity, uh, quite a creamy mouthfeel. Um, we had a very warm summer last year, as I'm sure you both remember. And we we believe this beer went through a malolactic fermentation, meaning um, the the malic acid of, of which you have a lot of it in rhubarb. Um, it can be quite quite jarring um if you're to eat raw rhubarb you know the acidity is very yeah it's, it's very intense so the acid profile is uh very soft in the beer it's there of course it's it's high but it's soft in the mouth so we haven't had it ten- tested but from a, a, a sensory perspective we believe that it, it went through a malolactic fermentation as did i think a, a lot of our other fruit beers from the from the summer um, so I think it's actually very drinkable for something that actually has a, a very high quantity of rhubarb in. It, it's very rhubarb forward as well. The first time we used rhubarb, we were terrified because of that high amount of, of acid in the vegetable. Um, but also, uh, you know, we're still playing around with our blends in terms of what fruits or vegetables, um, what should be more fruit forward or vegetable forward, what should be uh, more, um, uh, I don't know, what, what should be more balanced with the base beer underneath. Um mm. I mean, I definitely think that beer is is balanced, but it, it it's you know it smells of rhubarb. It, it's nostalgic when you smell it. I think that way anyway. You know, you think almost potentially it might be a little bit sweet because the nostalgia reminds you of like a rhubarb crumble or a pudding of some sort. But like all our beers, it's acidic, it's dry. So you know, you get the rhubarb through on, on the palate, but it's got that dryness. You know, there's no sweetness at all. I, I don't think anyway. Mm. Um, which is which is what we want. You know, we, we don't make sweet beers. So uh we love dryness, we love acidity, we love bitterness, all these things that for me make you want to take a second sip. I think I agree with the sort of lack of sweetness. My sort of uh, always jumping off point with rhubarb is rhubarb custards. Mm. Um and that's there's not a mass amount of rhubarb on the nose, but there's enough that you kind of start or I start expecting it. Mm-hmm. But no very dry, very drinkable, um, and yeah, really enjoyable. But uh, I think we'll have to we'll come back to the beer a little bit in uh, in the future. Uh, if we could take it back to the, to the start of the brewery, um, I think you mentioned that this is eighteen month and, and thirty month old beers, mm-hmm. so it, it's not exactly a beer that you can pump out on day one or or, or week one. Mm-hmm. How does that process start when you start a, a blendery, uh, and so, certainly on commercial terms? Yeah, it's a lot of waiting at the beginning which is um from a com- commercial perspective it's very difficult um you know we always factored in a, a long wait time for the beer to be ready when we started the business um I, I think we we thought we could turn a beer out a lot quicker than we could uh and, and i think you know myself and my charlie is my, my business partner we you know we, we make all the beers we blend all the beers we've always been very honest about the early beers saying you know we we were happy with what we put out but you know, we were using quite young beer. Our beer has come on a long way since then. Um, this this type of beer, these spontaneously fermented beers, um, develop with age, and they take a very long time to develop. So, um, you know, we were factoring in uh, a year no sales, 
in reality it was a year and three months or end of March so um, and yeah it's pretty, pretty painful to be honest but <laughs> but we did factor that in you know we, we knew it was going to take a while um, to get these beers out but you can't rush these beers um, mm. that's something we we knew when we went in but obviously have now very much learned that you know with blending these types of beers if you're putting in components you're not happy with uh, or you're not sure about, it's highly likely they'll come back to bite you after it's gone through its long period of conditioning. Uh, so you have to be very happy that you're putting in good beer. And Well, we've found this anyway. I can only speak from our experience. I, I wouldn't want to say what other blenders or people who make beer similar to this, I don't know how they do it, but um, you know, you've, you've got to make sure you're putting in the best beer you can put into these blends. Uh, mm. to ensure that you've got a, a fantastic, wonderful product or wonderful beer, you know, when it's gone through its conditioning and it's ready to drink. In those initial days then of the very first brews you were doing as crossover blendery, mm. um, how far ahead were you kind of planning? Was it 12 months, 24 months or even further beyond that? Well, we, no, we, th- we thought we could potentially get something out in 12 months. So we, we thought we could... Um, we, we still brew it now. It's it's this this base uh, wheat beer. Um, so we do a golden ale and a wheat beer. Uh, the golden ale has a high wheat content in it already, but the wheat beer has a, a super high wheat content. It's actually 30% malted barley, oh. 70% wheat, half of which is malted, half is raw. So it's an incredibly high amount of wheat in the actual beer. Um, the idea behind it was... Um, and I guess we'll need to talk about how the actual process works, but... Mm. Uh, briefly um, we wanted to do a shorter time in the cool ship or the cooling trays um, take the beer off after five or six hours rather than 15 hours in the trays and after five or six hours of it cooling you you take it off at a certain temperature you put it in a tank and you you hold it at that temperature and we were trying to get some sort of spontaneous acidification from the bacteria so you then move it out of the tank that well, this would happen at Elgood's, the brewery where we have our work made. You would then move it down to our blendery and it would go straight into barrel. And the idea is you've already got an acidified wort in the barrel that would then go through its uh, yeast fermentation, its Saccharomyces fermentation, and become a beer. Um, so you've also already got a, a, an acidic or a sour beer, hmm. meaning that you could then probably get it out rather than the way our beer acidifies is when it gets warm. That's when the bacteria is happy and it gets to work, which means you have to wait for the summer. If you haven't got a warm summer, what we experience anyway, you've then got to wait till the next summer. You know, that, that was our thinking. You could probably do six, seven, eight months if you're lucky, if that, if that spontaneous acidification happens right after the cool ship. Mm. Uh, it didn't really work out that well for us. Um, so we've kind of just decided that that's not something we're going to pursue. We're just going to let the beer do its thing. Uh, and then, you know, when it does come to summer, when it gets to those that warmer period of the summer, uh, we now allow the barn to warm up a little bit at certain times just to uh, give the bacteria a little bit of help in terms of the temperature. Uh, and we found rather than just being obsessed about keeping our, our barn at constant temperature the whole time, actually being a bit more relaxed about letting it get a little bit warmer and then we do see noticeable acidity pickup in our beers Mm. and acidity is a big part of our beers 
our early beers didn't have that much acidity. I'm now pretty happy with where the acidity's at with a lot of our barrels. Uh, and, you know, the, these beers are, are an important component. It's not all about the acidity, but an important component of these beers is acidity. It really lifts the beer. Uh, it really adds a level of, of uh, interest to the beer. You know, we don't really call our, our beers sour beers, but um, they do have acidity in them. You know, they do have sourness in them. Uh, and, and that's sort of quite a vital part. Uh, I just want to jump back into a bit more about the barn there, because sure. that sounds really fascinating. I mean, a lot of brewers will say that they, they get to know their kit and all of the kind of nuances and the different ins and outs of how it works. Have you found that somewhere you kind of get with the barn and sort of different heat spots and you might be putting barrels around where you go, okay, this needs it to be a bit hotter, so we'll put it here or... Yeah, that's, a good, that's an interesting question. Um, there are definitely warmer and colder spots in the barn. We can't utilise them necessarily because the barrels, once they're in place, they're in place. So um, just the way we've laid the barrels out in the barn, I, I'm happy with it because it maximises the space that we have. Um, but particularly now we're, we're stacking very high. We use 400 and 500 litre oak barrels. Wow. Um, we stack them four high. So uh, we do have heater and cooler units. Um, we haven't used them this season because the electricity is, is too expensive, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, on previous years, um, they're very good units at cooling and heating. But the way we have set them up uh, means there are spots that get warmer and some are cooler. So you know if if we could improve things i've got some ideas about what we could do but at the moment we're not there yet so mm. um i mean yeah learning the barn learning the fermentations has been a, a big part of things um you know we only brew in the winter months um which is frustrating when you're when you need your barrels to ferment so you know getting heaters installed was something we did pretty quickly because we knew we'd need to warm the room up so once the barrels were filled with the unfermented beer, we then need them to ferment. And, you know, learning how to do that the best we can to try and get those barrels in a warm enough environment so fermentation starts as quickly as possible um, has, been a, has been a bit of a learning journey. But the situation we're in now is a lot different to when we started. So we're, we've just nearly finished our fourth brewing season. That means we've got barrels that are now being filled with wort that have potentially had three turns of different beers in and if you think about it the barrel is porous it's made of wood which means the the ability to increase the microbial load of the barrel meaning the bacteria in the yeast will then you know uh, bed itself into the pores of the wood that is all contributing towards fermentation when you fill the barrels with wort so um, you know, we've seen um, a definite pickup in fermentation from barrels that we've used before, or at least a speed up in fermentation. So once you fill them with wort and you know they've been used before, we do often see a, a faster fermentation. And that also contributes to more of a house character. Now, obviously, these beers are spontaneously fermented, meaning every brew and fermentation is different. Um, but if you've got a barrel that has a more, uh, a higher microbial load, um, contributing to the fermentations that will then contribute to the flavor characteristics that you have later down the line. 
So you say it's been a learning process and you're still learning. And as the seasons change, you're learning all the time. Mm. So going back to the beginning of crossover blendery, this is a very specialized kind of form of brewing almost to get into. How did you decide that this was this was going to be it? This was what you guys wanted to do? Well, cause I, I'm not from a, a brewing background, neither is Charlie. Um, but we've, uh, we've known each other for a long time. We've been drinking beers of this style for a long time, specifically uh, Lambic. You know, to, to take it back, I guess we were introduced to it a lot earlier than I guess uh, maybe your normal beer drinker would be because a friend's dad used to bring um, Lambic and Gers back from Brussels. And that sort of, um, I guess from a, a younger age, just when you're getting into beer, um, we'd already had our minds open to what beer could potentially taste like. So fast forward 15, 16, 17 years, um, you know, we'd already drunk a lot of different types of beer. And I, I think we were always keen to do something like this. But if we were ever going to do something within beer, it would have to probably be this because we, we wouldn't have started a, a bit of business if we were doing other types of beer. This is the stuff we're really interested in. I mean, we, we drink lots of other stuff. You know, we're, we're both into wine. We love our ciders. But for me, these beers are the most interesting, the most complex, the most fascinating. Um and yes, jumping in the deep end in potentially an area of beer, which is very complicated and it's very much out of your control. Uh, and these beers are, are hard to produce. I don't think we would have done it with other beers. So it had to be kind of these beers that we enjoyed the most and that we found the most interesting and we drank the most of. Um, that's why we sort of went down this route of making these spontaneously fermented beers. Really sort of diving into the uh, the deepest of deep ends, I guess, is, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a it was a terrifying jump. That's that's for sure. But um, but we you know we quickly realised we had to do it ourselves. You know when we were first setting or putting the business model together, you know very quickly having had some discussions with some fellow brewers, some fellow business owners within the beer world. You know we quickly realised that it had to be us who were, who were making the beers um, mm. because you know we're passionate about the beers um, and you know. For us to really understand the beers, you know, we have to learn the process of how they're made. So we have to kind of make them ourselves to really understand that. And of course, you could start a business and hire someone in to do it. But mm. I guess that's not where our passion lies. Our passion really lies in the beer itself. And also, they're not really anyone around to hire to do it. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you probably struggle, I think. I mean, we briefly looked and there really wasn't anyone around. And you could go abroad and hire someone in. But you know, we never had the cash to, to pay someone a salary to hire someone in. So I was, was going to say, yeah, yeah it was, was always going to be want. us. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not going to sell any beer for a year, you, you don't really want to have that overhead. Yeah, exactly. Sort of, uh, yeah. And and also it's not just having a kind of production brewer in to press a few buttons as it is uh, a very hands-on specialist process that you yeah. would have wanted someone in to do. That's the thing. It's, it's, it's not, yeah. I mean, it's still now that there are not many people who'd really, um, you know, of course, anyone could do it. I mean, we, we've done it ourselves and we have no idea. But um, but yes, if you're paying someone a salary and they're coming from a specific brewing background, there's a huge crossover, obviously, but there's not really anything, you know, our process is very different. I mean, I, I'm not a brewer. I'm, I'm very interested in brewing, but that's not what we do. We're looking after the fermentation, the maturation, the fruiting, the dry hopping, the blending. You know, mo most of what we do, actually, normal brewers don't do it. So... You know, you could probably lean on the cider world and the wine world, potentially, if you're looking to employ someone, because the process is a lot more similar. 
uh, that would definitely be an area you could probably more effectively hire from. Um, but I, I don't think you would you'd do that well if you were looking within the, the beer world, um, which is strange because it's obviously, it is very much still a beer, but mm. um, I guess it just goes through all these processes after a normal beer would be made and what we do that makes it so different. Well, it's definitely if you're uh, if you're a wannabe brewer who wants to up their uh, their CV and make themselves a bit more hireable, maybe to not that many employers, but uh, <laughs> get yourself down for some work experience and uh, you've set, you set yourself apart. I just want to sort of jump back a little bit to those kind of that first year of selling. What was the decision making process around sort of holding stuff back to be blended later versus getting a bit of sort of cash in and and turn over and selling those first few beers? I mean, I, I think at the beginning we were just using the barrels we thought were were best. So at the beginning it wasn't too hard in terms of holding stuff back. We were literally picking barrels that we thought were the most interesting at the time. Um, I think now is a lot more interesting in terms of what do you use now, what do you hold back? Because um, you know we are in no way experienced at what we're doing, uh, but we're getting a better understanding of how our barrels are, you know how they evolve what a bit should taste like at one year old, two year old and at three year old. Um, and I think now is where it's, it's really interesting because then it becomes a bit more difficult, you know, logistically in terms of what are you going to hold back? What are you going to use at that time when you're trying to blend a beer? You know, we're of the, the school of thought where if a barrel's tasting good, you should use it rather than be um, like, oh, well, you know, this is tasting pretty good. And we've got this blend coming up in the next three months which then turns into six months because you're busy doing something or whatever and then before you know it the barrels uh turned a corner which it's not necessarily a bad thing but it may have stalled a little bit it may have gone a bit flat in flavor um flat's probably not the best word but Mm. it's not tasting as you remember it it doesn't have whatever component or components that were very interesting at that time i mean our barrels do often do that, um, particularly as they evolve. Um, there might be a lovely characteristic about something that then either goes away or it turns into something else a few months later. So um, it, that's an important part that we've learned mm. that you know, you've know you got to try and use something if it is tasting really good or you think it's tasting good at that, at that time. So do you always try and catch it on the way up then? You think, okay, there's something here that I'm really quite liking. Let's let's start using this. So as it kind of matures through, or is it as soon as you sort of take it out of the barrel, you kind of don't, you lose that evolution? If, you know, if we're blending something, then it's going to be packaged fairly soon after that. So you're, you're catching it at the moment you think it's it's good. It will evolve after that because the, the beer evolves. But, but, but that's... The blended beer will evolve not that one component you know it as a whole will then evolve into something else but yes you, you are you are choosing barrels which you think are tasting good at that moment and you're trying to capture that flavor to add it to a blend to make something special and yeah it can be difficult you know obviously use a barrel if it's tasting good but if you're then using a one-year-old beer and you know it's got the ability to age two years three years four years five years whatever it's that it's a tricky thing if you're like, I know this beer has a lot of potential, but it's also tasting quite good. And I also think it might favor the blend that we're doing now. That's quite a tricky thing. And, and we don't have a huge amount of old beer stock uh, because we're, you know, we're trying to put out a good amount of beers. And I think our beers taste really good at two years old in the barrel, two, year, two years on, 
that you then end up using quite a lot of that good stock at two years and then mm. you've only got a few barrels left that are you know the barrels that we have are three years and four months you know we don't have a huge amount of it left and uh, it'll probably have to get used you know by summer which means mm. our, wow. our th- three-year stock will then be pretty much depleted but then you know by november just got off, fresh we've got the then through. the second year's now become three years old so yeah. It's, that's a massive thing we're learning. It's, it's really not easy. Um, just the logistics of it, you know, what to use when, what to hold on to. And I don't think we'll really have a, a proper grasp of that for many, many more years because it's, it's you know, speaking to the Lambic producers, that is a, a big challenge. And mm. those who have been going for quite a long time have that sort of stuff nailed down. But a lot of them are still quite, you know, they find it just as tough because it's that whole way up of what's good when should it be used and how much should you hold back for the for the older beer stock i suppose alongside whilst you're learning all this at the same time you're also learning about the fruits so we've got the rhubarb in this one you mentioned the acidity that's within that do you have kind of a farming background like how do you find out about the different notes of the different fruits and the young rhubarb and maybe further on in the season yeah that's so neither of us have a farming background but um (laughs) But you know, we're fascinated by it. I mean, it, it's it's a big thing of what what we do the, the fruit, and um, we've had a lot of help. We've had some help getting fruit contacts. Charlie works really hard at, at expanding our, our contact list within the fruit growing industry. It's not an in, easy industry to get into in terms of obtaining good fruit, mm. uh, and some fruit growers are can be very difficult to deal with. Can be very difficult to get hold of. Uh, and we're on the search of some pretty esoteric fruit varieties. We're looking for um, some pretty niche stuff, let's say within plums. We're finding some incredible heritage varieties where you've only got a few growers left in the UK. But I guess, again, that's just learning as we go, particularly from like a flavour perspective, you know, learning what works best for our our beer, um, learning like when the fruit is best to use. Uh, it's not black and white you know sometimes you're using stuff that's slightly underripe if you're looking for more acidity sometimes you're using stuff that's Mm. really ripe sometimes you're using fruits and this is for us anyway mostly you're using more cooking varieties of fruits so you're looking at stuff that has higher acid acidity you're looking at stuff that's you know might have tannins it's not great to eat but it comes through in in a beer very very well Um, you know we we more use cooking varieties of fruit than really sweet eating varieties. And again, I guess this is just learning as we go along. You know, there's some great sources for uh, making these types of beers online and we've we've used them as much as we can. Uh, but now we're sort of carving our own route within using fruit and beer. I mean, we use a lot of it. And again, we'll be coming into our fourth fruit season and we've just got a better idea of what works in our beer, how to use the fruit and what the eventual beer will turn out tasting uh, like. But that's that's just been a learning process. Meeting the farmers, meeting the growers, that's been a big part of it. Actually building a relationship with them, talking to them, asking them a lot of advice about what's the best fruit for this. I mean, they have no idea what it would be like in a beer, but at mm. least they can tell you what's good this year, what's not good this year because of adverse weather conditions or yeah. whatever other issue they may have had with one of their fruits. And that's been massive. So not just buying from a wholesaler or a middleman, actually having a relationship with these fruit growers, that I think has massively benefited um, turning out a better beer because we're very confident that we're buying the best 
uh, we're supporting these growers, uh, these British farmers, and hopefully then turning out a really good beer out the back of it. Is that something they kind of sort of had thought about at all or have any experience with in the large part, sort of bit or the produce going into beer? No, none of some of them think we're absolutely bonkers. It's um, <laughs> some, I don't think any of the, the growers that we um, we use have, have been used for beer. They're, they're normally they normally think we're mad when we when we talk to them, but they're always up for it because you know it's, I guess they're, you know they're just selling more of their, their fruit. But um, mm. but it's quite fun, and we always give them a beer with the fruit if if, if it's come from their fruit, we we'll give them a beer. Um, sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't. But um, I was going to say, if, if you've got yeah. a John Smith drinker who uh, yeah. suddenly gets this shot of bubble through the post and goes, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. Are they normally quite surprised by the flavours you manage to pull out of the fruits? Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess we're trying to capture the essence of the of the fruit. So, um, and I believe we do do that quite, quite well with some of the beers. So um, I, I think it's fantastic, you know, because often, you know, the fruit growers, it, it's an unconventional customer for, the, for them to have. And, and actually, you know, what we're doing with the fruit, the whole process it goes through, the fact that we, we buy the fruit from the grower and then the beer's not ready for another, you've got to re-ferment it, you then got to condition it. It's likely you we won't give them... they've sold it to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we give them the beer the following season sort of thing. So, but no, it's, it's great, you know, because you're, you're building a relationship with, with someone doing something slightly different you know trying to support what they're doing particularly if we're buying a more niche variety that no one's buying anymore mm. um you know there are quite a few varieties that we use where the market is completely dead for it you know and and there's little reason why the grower is still growing it uh, you know it, it wouldn't be from a demand perspective there might be some other reason why they're still growing it or it's an old orchard that they, they just couldn't face turfing up to put in something else you know Mm. uh and, and that's what i you know we we really enjoy that you know trying to promote not only british fruit and british farming but also these these weird and wonderful varieties that yes 100 or 200 years ago would have been very popular but now don't get any sort of look in at all and you know it's not surprising with supermarkets and how people buy fruit consume fruit and have any idea about fruit um but we do have a wonderful fruit industry in the UK and there's a huge pool of wonderful fruit that you can choose from um and that's what we're trying to show through through these beers um I know it's fascinating and uh all, all the best to you for, for for giving it a go just sort of, sort of jumping back now to barbarian lands before we kind of wrap it up a little bit very curious to know about the uh, the etymology of the name and and why barbarian lands was was the one you've come up with for this oh my god I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. So pop... I'll, should I give you some uh, some origin stories and you tell me if I'm close with any of them? Yeah, it could be. This was. I'm gonna pass the buck onto Charlie, my business partner, because he named this. So I'm just gonna have no responsibility in this at all for the beer naming. <laughs> okay. I so my my first thought is um is the the origin of the word barbarians, which was people who didn't speak uh is it Latin. Because it mm-hmm. sounded sort of bubble. so maybe it's you have too much of this you can't speak properly. Don't think it's that, but I like that. That's, I like that. that's the first one. Um, yeah, barbarian lands again, same kind of base theme there. People outside of Rome, so it's from it's from beer made from outside of uh, from produce grown outside of Italy. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it I, there. I can't uh, even remember, but that could be a thing in that you know a lot a lot of fruit has made its way, even though it's vegetable. A lot mm. of fruit has made its way to Britain. From the Romans, so 
maybe I can't believe I'm now not even knowing what the name is. And I'm trying to come up with, I'm actually just going to leave it there. I've, I've, well, I know the, I'm going to get this wrong. The mystery is fantastic. And yeah. uh, <laughs> feel free to drop us a message if you have a more ridiculous suggestion than, than I can come <laughs> up do. with. Okay. Um, I just want to come back. I've really enjoyed this and I'm, Good. I'm absolutely buzzing for the next two beers. Cause the first sip of this, I, I don't know if you caught my reaction, but I was like, Oh yes. I mean, for a, for a wild beer, especially a blend it was incredibly sort of smooth subtle but then actually wait no where there's there's so much there and i think the rhubarb does a really good job of um kind of giving you the bridge for all the flavors and it not being too harsh at the start it's um yeah mm-hmm. for me definitely allows you to get into the beer without being kind of blown away by how much is going on fantastic enjoy it yeah I think it's um, some, this style of beer can very much scare people a lot of the time. But I think this is very much one where when you actually pour it and get into the beer, it's a lot more accessible than people may think, you know. It does have that lovely acidity, but it's kind of a soft acidity on the palate. It's nothing, it's not overpowering. And like you mentioned at the start, you were happy with the balance of this beer. And I just have to say, I completely agree with that. Um, it's not too much one way or the other. And yeah, I've really, really enjoyed drinking that. Fantastic. My uh, my final question about the beer, rhubarb, not a particularly sexy vegetable. Hmm. Is it uh, is it one that people go for? Do you have to kind of say, no, trust trust me, this is this is fantastic. But most, I've, what I found is most people like rhubarb, and it's you're right. The feedback we've got, I mean, we we've got this tap room that's reopened, and you know, I've done plenty of markets now where we've had to speak to customers who, I mean, most people don't know what these beers are. So if you get the average punter who's not even really a beer drinker, let alone someone who's into craft beer, you know, you've really got to start from the beginning and try and explain it in a way that isn't confusing uh and give them a beer that isn't too uh crazy and we've we've done a, a couple like that and and I, i've definitely found this barbarian lands to be like that because rhubarb everyone knows what it is most people like it i, I found pretty much 100 percent of customers i speak to like it um you know it's it's soft it's easy to drink the acidity is well integrated it's a bit lower abv so actually, you know, everyone looks at these types of beers as being the most challenging you can drink. People always get there on their beer journey, you know, before then just going back to lager because there's no really, you know, there's nowhere else to go afterwards. It's peaked. It's peaked. But 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 actually, you know, what, what we're trying to do, I mean, of course, we're, we're trying to make beers that are challenging and complex. And some are, are way more challenging than, than others. But that doesn't mean you can't make a beer that everyone can drink and rhubarb plays very well well into that and, and actually in reality that's what we're, we're trying to do like when we when we we've done a one and two year olds we've got a three-year blend that's conditioning at the moment we we want that to be our house beer and i don't want that you know that beer is for me will become the most complex beer it's the beers that have the the most potential to age for me they're the most interesting more so than than the fruited beers but also I want that beer to be a beer that every, everyone drinks. You know, it's the drink mm. that you can have after a stressful day at work. It's the drink you can sit down and really think about. It's the drink for any occasion. So we are, you know, it's a bit of a contradiction. We're trying to make these really complicated, complex beers, but also we're trying to make beers that people can drink, you know, and, and enjoy and, and everyone can enjoy. 
Well, speaking of beers to drink, I need to go and grab the uh, the next one from the fridge. So uh, stick around and we'll be right back after this. Hey, Dom, you know what I love? Seamlessly integrated ad reads? Yes. Great deals? You bet. Try new beers from breweries around the UK. That's right, but not everyone has a podcast where they can do it every week. That's why we've teamed up with Bruiser to offer you £8 off your first box. Bruiser is the service that takes fresh craft beer from breweries around the country straight to your door. Every month, over 120 of the best breweries in the country create a box that showcases the best they offer. All you need to do is select which one you want a box from, or you can leave it on random. And of course, enter the code 3 Men when you sign up to get £8 off your first box and support the podcast. That's code 3VICEMEN for £8 off your first box. Now, back to the pod. Uh, welcome back. We're, we're still joined with uh, George from Crossover Blendery, who's just teased us that the beer we're about to open is quite different to anything they've ever made before. Now, that makes me want to pop the cork out of this bottle pretty much as fast as I can, so I need to find a way to stop talking. George, Ciro, uh, we've also mentioned off-air that it's sort of cloud-based. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the beer and then a bit about the name? Sure, yeah, so it's... um. It's a Goza, uh, Goza style wild ale. We decided to do this uh, because we had that base wheat beer that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. We had some barrels that were about two years old and they had a really nice acid profile. I really like Gozas. I don't drink a lot of them uh, because there aren't a lot available. And I'm not talking about fruited Gozas or gozas that have been completely changed by adding lots of odd ingredients to them. More, you know, the original style of goza. So something that has a a nice citrus character, probably lemon, and then uh, a nice saline finish, so a salty finish. So we thought uh, we would give a goza style a go. So it has exactly that, but with a goza, you'd normally use coriander seed on the, on the hot side when you're brewing. We brew very large quantities at Elgoods. It's 8,000 litres at a time. We're not oh. going to then start mucking around for one type of beer when really the Goza was only a blend of, let's say, four barrels. So um, we actually dry hopped it with an experimental hop from Charles Farham, uh, CF161. Uh, it's supposed to have a lot of uh, lemon character to it. And I definitely think, particularly in the Roma, it, it, it gives a citrus note, you know, a, a lemony note is, is what I get through it. And then obviously, we, you know, we finished it with, with British sea salt. So um, salt's quite a difficult one as well, because very easy to go over. We can always blend back, so it's not that big of an issue. But I think the salt actually works really well. What I like the most about it is how the salt works with the acidity. So this is supposed to be just a refreshing sort of summer drinker. It's 5.3%. I thought it was going to be lower, actually. We were kind of hoping for sub five, more nearer four. Uh, but traditional gozers kind of sit in the four to five percent range. Also, traditional gozers, as in, you know, in the 1800s, would have been spontaneously fermented. And I think this is purely through reading that acid profile would have actually been quite acetic, which is not what we were going for in our beer. But it could have probably had an acid profile that was a bit more aligned with a lambic beer than it was actually with the gozas of today. So I guess it's a little bit of a nod to that. You know, we're trying to make a goza maybe more similar to how it was made 200 years ago, for example, as to what the gozas are like now. Take me about 200 years ago. I'm, I'm having a bloody great time and I'd like to be sipping this in a sunny orchard. 
Fantastic. Glad you're enjoying it. Oh, uh, and the and the and sorry, yeah. So it's a it's a cloud reference. The name. So, yes. Uh, there you go. Which is completely random, not <laughs> relevant to anything. But uh, we've named other <laughs> beers after clouds, so this is this is why. I was going to say a bit of blue sky thinking, but not not blue sky. No, but not uh, quite. we'll not get quite. there later. Um, just sort of jumping back to uh, the kind of brewing side, doing eight thousand liter batches is the cool ship at El Goods. Then, have you got your own? All the brewing happens at El Goods. They've got two two cooling trays or, or cool ships that are four thousand liters each. It's a really really fantastic place. And if, if you want to get a better idea about our brew day and our brew process, uh, I just want to reference the Craft Beer Channel just did a, a film with us at Elgood's. Uh, Johnny Garrett came and, and filmed up at Elgood's for the day and he, he's taken some really beautiful footage of the brewery and of the cooling trays filling. And that'll give you a, a great idea of, of what the brew day looks like mm. when, we're, when we're there. Um, but the, the cooling trays at Elgood's are, are built into the the, the frame the, the structure of the building so they can't be removed they probably would have been removed um because you know they became obsolete really in terms of their use in mm. the actual brew process but Elgoods they've always been plumbed in um so they, they've always been there and they've they you know Elgoods could always use them so pretty easy for yeah. us to then come in and brew there and use their cooling trays but but yes all of the native yeast and bacteria uh is from that room and what's blown in from outside we don't have a cool ship at our blendery um uh, that we use not yet anyway mm. so all of the brewing and the cooling is done done up at Elgoods. we probably should touch on for those who haven't sort of heard of one before of what a cool ship or cooling trays are mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll give it my best shot and then jump in and correct me okay, so sure. uh yeah large open place where you uh the wart cools off and you get the natural yeast and bacteria from the environment into the uh, water at that point to then start the fermentation. So you end up with beers that are very specific to the locality in which they uh, started getting that sort of yeast and bacteria into them. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's completely correct. Yeah. It's, it's a long cooling process though. So it's, um, you know, we normally turn out onto the trays mid-afternoon and they're taken off nine to ten o'clock the next day. So, so know, that's, that's to... rather than going through a uh, a heat uh, heat transformer in a yeah, so, process. So exactly, yeah. And um, prior to the to the sort of invention of uh, heat transfer or like a chiller unit of some sort, this is how all work would have been cooled down. Our goods obviously used it to cool their work down. It adds to the the day because you've then mm. got to wait till the next day before you're moving the work into your fermenting vessels uh but for us it's 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 obviously absolutely um imperative because we're, we're not pitching any yeast or bacteria into the beer your wort is boiled so it's it's after you've mashed in you're boiling you're adding hops so any wild yeast that was was on the the grain is is then pasteurized when it's boiled so unlike a a, a wine or a cider when you're you're relying on the wild yeast that's present on the skin of the, the fruit. For beer, you, you have to have this process if you're going to make this type of beer where you, you cool the, the work down, you expose it to its, the, um, the environment around it, uh, and you allow uh, the wild yeast bacteria in the room, the, the native yeast bacteria in the room, to fall in the wort, and that spontaneously inoculates your wort, which will then lead to a spontaneous fermentation. It always amazes me 
how uh, how in the air around us there is the or some of the ingredients needed to turn liquid that's quite sweet into the uh, the lovely stuff I have in my hands right now. Uh, just for people imagining it, myself included, this eight thousand liter. How kind of how big is that? How deep does it get? So it's a, it's a very shallow tray or two trays. That they're two copper trays. Um, I can't even think right now of the measurements, but they're both very very big. I mean, mm. you're probably only looking at. 12 15 inches deep I mean they really are shallow wow. um you know obviously you need a, a larger surface area to speed the cooling process so yeah. but also it works very well for us because you have a larger surface area for the yeast bacteria to to drop into so contact with the the um the uh, the yeast bacteria that's falling in so yeah you, you know people do use cooling trays or cool ships that are deeper uh, but elgood's it's much more similar to the traditional cool ships you might see in, in Belgium. Uh, so they're normally very shallow and normally pretty, pretty large. Um, and it's got copper rather than steel. So, you know, traditionally copper was used a lot more with brewing equipment. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, it's amazing to see them. To see I think them so that must be a ma- quite stunning as well with the kind of copper color, just sort of as the, the water's running over it. Yeah, it's beautiful, yeah. And, and the most impressive thing is, I guess the room fills up with all the steam so as the boiling wort is hitting the trays the room very quickly fills up with steam uh to the point where this is this is a pretty enormous room in the middle of the brewery and the whole thing gets to the point where you can't see the hat you know your hand in front of your face wow. uh, and then all of the the wort is you know the condensation is dripping into the wort so you know all of that is mm. contributing to its inoculation they've actually got two uh, large oak planks that are above the the cooling trays, and they were from an oak tree that that um, you know that that fell down in in the garden. Elgood's is a, a beautiful Georgian brewery. It's got these lovely gardens, and they they plank them and then put them up above the the cooling trays. Um, idea being with the yeast potentially working its way into the wood, specifically Britannomyces. Um, you know that condensation would then drip back down from the wood assisting oh, the course. inoculation of the of the wort whether it helps or not or not I, i'm not sure but you know we, we get good fermentations i'm happy with the flavor profiles of our beer so I'm, I'm sure it's contributing i guess if you get your own cool ship you might have to try and steal the planks to uh, get a bit of consistency yeah just do, you just do it yourself just just chop something or well, maybe don't chop a tree down but go and uh... <laughs> if you find some laying around somewhere yeah, exactly then... <laughs> put, put that above yeah. well it definitely sounds like a spa that i want to go to if the, the room fills up with steam better than most steam rooms i've been to i just wanted to drop back into the kind of belgium aspect i mean this is a, a ghost style beer mm-hmm. i mentioned that uh, kind of previous beers are a lot closer to the belgium styles is that was that Obviously, and, and how you got into the style of beer with, with the beers being brought back from Brussels. Is that with the recipe inspiration? Have you looked straight there? Have you looked at more of the kind of more recent stuff that's happened in the UK and America? It's a bit of a mix, really. I mean, we do lean a lot on the Belgians for process, specifically Lambic producers. And I guess we kind of have to because, one, they're not very far away from us. And two, mm. they, you know, they are... The, the producers of Lambic. So they they follow this process and they know what they're doing. Um, but, you know, the idea is not to strictly adhere to it the whole time. You know, we don't call our beer Lambic um, mm. and we're not making 
lambic, which is important to point out, you know, we're making spontaneously fermented beer from Britain, from our era of Britain, that is reflective of, you know, where we're from and what we're trying to make. But it's great because it gives you free, you know, Goza was a, a German beer style, you know, we can dip our toes into a completely different beer style and just say we're giving it a go. And that's that's in line with the freedom that this whole craft beer world has, you know, people are trying lots of different things the whole time, always iterating, always, you know, using incredible ingredients, trying new beers out, you know, um, changing beers, mixing things up. You know, we want to do that with our stuff as well. You know, we've got complete freedom to do that with our beers and try whatever fruits we want and blend different fruits together, herbs, spices, whatever, you know, so, and of course, a lot of the Lambic guys are doing that as well, but um, I guess we we can kind of drop and change and do what we want. And we're also interested in mixing it up from a, a grain perspective. So obviously you're not just using uh, malted barley and wheat, but you could use rye, you could use oats, um, and then you could go a bit deeper into what wheat you're using, what mm. uh, barley varieties you're using. Yeah, heritage grains and, and stuff like exactly, that. It's quite you know, interesting. Exactly. Um, and and it's, it's a good opportunity just to, to use British ingredients again, you know, what, what I, I quite like about what we're doing is we're not hop orientated. You know, we do use aged hops in our brew process um, and we do dry hop, but the dry hops we've done have been with British hops. We're not looking for incredibly powerful, punchy hop flavours. And that just means we can bring things back to British ingredients a bit more. Uh, th- these beers really do suit that in terms of our focus on using British ingredients mm. uh, and that's a big part of what we're doing and we're trying to sort of bring provenance back to where ingredients come from a bit more um, rather than relying on ingredients that then uh, come from abroad. When you are selecting these so in this one the experimental hop and the rhubarb in the previous beer I feel like with some styles of brewing and some styles of beer, you can do like a test batch on the side, like a small 20 litre. We'll mm. try these hops, see if it works. I don't feel like there's that wiggle room for you guys. How do you go about making sure that you know this rhubarb or this hop's going to work with this beer? So fruit, for example, I think we could have played it safer with some things we've used where we've learned the hard way. Um, you, you could just you know, run test batches in smaller tanks, demijohns, whatever you want to use um, to see if that fruit suits what you're aiming for. Or I guess you could do the similar with with hops. We've never done it with the hops, but we're going to start doing it more with, with the fruit. I guess the issue is just like time. And, you know, we're working with seasons, right? You know, you've got fruit that comes into season. If you've got an incredible variety of fruit that you really want to use, but you have no idea if it works well with your beer, we more likely just buy the fruit and give it mm. a go. Um, yeah. Yes, that's come back to bite us with some fruits uh, in which the results have been bad uh, and that's resulted in getting rid of the beer, you know, a painful experience, particularly when we're using older beer. But I, I think going forward, if we're using something that's very niche that no one else has really used before, then we'll run tests in terms of doing test batches. But if it's something a bit more conventional, then we're normally pretty much confident enough to know that the beer will work out mm-hmm. um there are a few fruits we we just blanket won't use ever again but most things you 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 can't use them can you share those fruits 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and this is not to say people haven't made good beers before, but strawberry, we just had a very bad uh, problem with it. Um, what is, sort of quantity are you using when you're looking at doing these beers? So now we're using kind of up to half a ton. When we wow. started, it was about 100 to 120 kg, which is painful if you're using expensive fruit. Not too bad if it's not too pricey. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we're not diving in at half a ton on something we're not confident about now. Mm. Um, and these larger fruiting quantities where we're doing bigger batches, these are on fruits that we've used now two or three times. Mm. We're very confident in the variety. We're confident in the fruit type. Uh, and we're confident what sort of outcome we'll get in the beer. Now, of course, it changes every time because the fruit is good some seasons. It's not so good on other seasons. Um, temperatures differ in terms of, um, you know, when you're re-fermenting the beer on the fruit as to the outcome of what that beer is like post re-fermentation on the fruit. Um, there are variables that we obviously don't know about. So, again, we're still learning. But, yeah, if we're going if we're going in for it on some very weird berry variety that no one has ever used before, again, kind of learned the hard way on this, then we're probably just going to run a small test batch in a small tank. If it works out well, of course, you can just release a small release and then scale it up off the back of that, you know, the next season. Um, and yes, you could use frozen fruit. So you could get a load of frozen fruit of that fruit type in and then be like, great, this has worked really well. Uh, let's scale it up. But often, as I've mentioned before, we're using some quite niche heritage varieties. So you're mm. not going to get it in frozen and then use it. You know, when that window of opportunity comes, they pick the fruit and it's ready to go to be delivered to you. You've got to, you know, you've got to go for it at that point and then hope for the best. It doesn't sound particularly no. <laughs> professional, I guess, in a way. But that's that's one of the beauties of it. You know, when, when fruit season starts and it's all a buzz of activity and you've got these incredible fruits that are coming into season uh, and you get really excited about it and then the fruit turns up and it's not quite as good as you wanted because they've had some issues with growing it i guess you're just rolling the dice that's the whole thing with making these types of beers i think it's what makes them exciting as well i mean i know that we've got uh, we probably haven't described these yet but um we've got beautiful sort of 375 mil sort of half champagne bottles we pop corks out of cages there's, there's a lot of theater to it it's a full sort of artisan product and I think when you have that variance it's not a we make the same beer every week on Monday we do this on Tuesday we do this on Wednesday at nine o'clock the lorry turns up with this and we get the same thing out and the canning line runs that's not what you're getting you're getting a, a handmade hand blended you've tasted all of the thing all of the uh, different barrels that have got into it and said okay we're going to use that that and that in this quantity you've got to expect that from fruit and especially not using frozen stuff which is a lot of labor saving especially with mm -hmm. stuff that needs processing yeah you know that's, that's that's why it's a premium exciting product just to say i mean we have used frozen fruits mm. and I'm, I'm not at all against um using no. them they make our life a lot easier and, and often if for example you can't get the fruit that year because they've had a crop failure then if you can get it frozen from the year before then we'll do that certain fruits i mean most people get raspberries frozen we actually get them fresh you know which is wow. is pretty cool because they deteriorate very quickly they break apart very quickly um they're a very very soft fruit obviously mm. um so getting frozen would be pretty easy but we we actually get this these incredible organic raspberries and we can we can get them fresh we'll go and drive pick them up bring them back use them straight away it doesn't really matter in a way it, it's just 
if you're getting the best out of the fruit, that's the most important thing. Mm. Um, I think two things, you know, using really good, high quality British fruit doesn't have to be organic, just really high quality British fruit where you're supporting the British farming system and getting the best out of that fruit. That's probably the two big things that we're aiming for, whether frozen, fresh, whatever, like as long as you can get the best out of it, that's you know the most important thing. Just logistically then with those kind of uh, real fresh, get it in, get it in the beer. Are you planning the your days around when you know you can get that fruit in? Is it a, the fruit uh, goes, free fr- yeah, the bat line rings and you say, okay, we need to get ready? Yeah, exactly. They, they, some of these fruit growers don't give you any time at all. Like, it's pretty frustrating. It's like, right, it's, it's ready tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. You're just like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> you've got this whole week planned of work. But yeah, that's the joy of it. Um, we're kind of used to it now. And we know when it gets to that period of, like, July, August, you know, September, October, um, you just got to be prepared to get it. And with prices sort of, you know, getting things delivered now, it, it's way more expensive than it used to be when we started the business. So we now go and get the fruit. We never used to. We just get wow. it couriered or we pay mm. someone to go and get it. And so now it very much literally is, right, drop what you're doing. One of us has to get in the car to go and get it. Or we have to rent a van to go and get it. Before it was a bit easier. It's like, right, okay, we'll just call up this person, pay them, they'll go and get it. So yeah, it is hard to plan around it, but mm. that's that's what you're sacrificing in order to try and get a fresh, high quality ingredient for your for your beer. And yes, when when we get it, the, you need to get the beer on it um, asap. So mm. it's it's not easy because we hand process all our fruit. So when we get the fruit in, we quite literally go through all the bits of fruit, checking it. So if that's half a ton, that's many hours, sometimes wow. days of work which is frustrating because you want the beer to get on it as quickly as possible. But, you know, if you're getting the fruit, well, we never really get fruit in in the evening, but if you do, you've got to basically get on with, get on with the work. I remember we got strawberries in the beer that didn't work out. We got that quite late in the evening and we were, we were foot stomping the strawberries at sort of 12 o'clock at night and then getting the beer onto it, which made it even more painful when the beer then didn't turn out and tasted like shit. Paint the scene for us. You've got this 500 kilos of strawberry. Yeah. You're stamping. What happens to it then once it arrives at you? So the strawberries were um, very quick to process because it was really high quality fruit. Uh, it just goes straight into a tank. We, we don't foot stomp any of our fruits, really. <laughs> we, we did it with the, the strawberries for a specific reason. But normally the fruit will just go into the tank. Uh, if it's a stone fruit, you've got to decide whether you're going to destone it. Some stone fruits easier than others, you know, We've never destoned uh, cherries, for example. Um, and I really like that. would be labor intensive. Yeah, you need a machine. There's just no way you'd be mm. able to do that. I mean, destemming is long enough on strawberries, let alone if you were then destoning. But I, I really like what the character that stone can, you know, that the stone of a fruit can give a beer. So more often than not, now we're actually leaving the stone in, or we'll destone half, freeze the stones, and then use the stones for another, for oh, another wow. beer. But that's just adding to it. You know, you're checking fruit, you're then halving the fruit, you're then chucking it in a in a in a in a tank, you're then putting the stone in another pile that then goes to so it it whatever. I, I all breweries, anyone who's making any alcoholic beverage, that it, a lot of these processes take a long time. It's just if you're quite rudimentary in your setup and you have to do it by hand, it then takes even longer. But um so the fruit will go into the tank and then we decide on a barrel and we'll just put the beer straight, you know, from the barrel uh normally by pump onto the beer and tank uh and just leave it to re-ferment um we do 
do punch downs. So that is the process of once the beer has started re-fermenting, <clears throat> the fruit will be forced up to the top of the beer uh, and it forms a fruit cap. You also have it in wines. Uh, and what they do in the wine world, they'll often punch the cap down. So because the headspace in the tank is filled with CO2 because it's re-fermenting, you can safely go in and punch the fruit cap down, reintroduce the fruit cap into the liquid below just to try and extract more flavour and colour. Or you could do a pump over where you take the beer from the bottom and you pump it over the top just to soak the fruit cap, try and get more flavour and colour. We've also started doing carbonic macerations. So you, you would put the fruit into a completely purged tank so there's no O2 uh, and the fruit will start fermenting from within basically. It's a carbonic maceration. So that's another technique from the wine world. They don't use it for every type of grape in every region, but let's say, for example, Beaujolais, they use it quite successfully. Uh, and you're just trying to get more fruit flavor out of the fruit. Mm. Again, it doesn't work on every fruit, uh, but these are just things we're trying to do to try and maximize the, the flavor of, of the fruit. We don't punch down the whole time. We're just doing it when we feel like we need to do it for that, for that beer. Yeah. And that re-fermentation is that leftover yeast with the extra sugar content from the new fruit? Is that the yeast that's on the fruit you're putting both, in? Both, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why It's always yeah, very interesting, that kind of stuff to me. Yeah. It's, it's like wizardry, beer wizardry. I love it. You can get some really amazing results out the back of using real fruit. Um, we do something slightly different, though, because we, we fruit... So, and this isn't different. Other producers do this as well. We fruit to a high quantity. So let's say you're 500 kg of fruit. We'll then put four or 500 litres of beer on it. So let's say you're working kind of one-to-one. -one. Uh, we'll let the beer re-ferment. And off the back of that, you have a highly, highly concentrated fruit beer to the point where it's not really recognisable as a beer. It's just almost like a fruit wine of some sort. But the important thing for us is because we have this barrel stock, which we now have over multiple years, the important thing for us is to then blend back. So you're then blending to a point, which we now do across these years, to a level that you're happy with. So you can bring in lots of different components and start building a blend of this fruit beer that is no longer that really highly concentrated beer, but a nicely balanced fruit beer that has other components in it. Uh, and I just really like that, that way of doing things because you're basically taking control again of the whole process and you can really form and blend the beer that you're happy with rather than getting a really good beer that you've blended over years, then re-fermenting on fruit and then being like, right, well, we have to release what we've got now. Um, even if you weren't that happy with it, you're like, right, we're going to release it as it is. The way we do it means you can just blend it to how you want and release basically the beer that you want. Well, I think that's a lovely segue to talking about the beer that I want right now, which is the beer in my glass and, and this Ciro. I've, I very much enjoyed the glass. I had to stop myself at the end because I was going to finish it before this sort of segment and I would have to speak from memory, which is terrible for me. Um, you know, I'd, I'd laboured over describing a cool ship. No, I've really enjoyed this. Storm. how has it gone down for you? Yeah, it's um, it's gone down really well. It's kind of, I'm going to describe it as the most intense lemon sherbet you've ever had. I think that's kind of the character that I'm getting from this one. Um, the hop definitely give you do get that citrus from the hop, like especially on the nose. Um, and the palate is just dried out super quickly on the sip, but in a very pleasant way, as strange as that may sound. Um, and it just, yeah, it just keeps you going back for the next sip. It's definitely slightly more challenging than the first beer, I would say. But yeah, really enjoyed drinking through this one. 
yeah, slightly gutted I haven't bought 750 mil, but uh, I'll have to come down to the tap room. Yeah, uh, speaking of the tap room, that also serves the beer we're going to drink next after this. They drink beer, so much beer. All of the different types of beer. They drink beer, lots of beer. It's beer. Thanks for sticking with us. We're still with uh, with George from Crossover Blendery, who's hasn't had to enjoy the jingle you've just had to listen to. So sorry about that, everybody. But uh, we'll, we'll show you after George is fine. It's, uh, it's not as bad <laughs> as everybody in the comments is making out. Uh, we're moving on to the third beer now, and this is sort of going back towards the first beer we had with the uh, the Golden Ale base. But it's also got some interesting berries that I don't think I've come across before. Uh, for those of you drinking along or, or buying off the web shop as we speak, this is uh, Pam- Pampero? Pampero, yeah. Pampero. Can you give us a bit more background while I uh, get it down my throat? Yeah, sure. So this is, um, I think, 18 and 30 month again. Might be 20 and 30 month. Oh, I think it's 18 and 30 months. 18 and 30, 18 yeah. 18 months, yeah, yeah. So it's our base gold now. It's multiple raw wheat. Um and we basically did like a test run on some pretty interesting berries that are mostly grown abroad. People don't know about them or know that they're grown in the UK. Uh, Aronia berries is one of them. We've also used June berries and then honey berries. Honey berries was a beer we released called Honey Isle, uh, which is a really interesting beer. If anyone's had a chance to try it, I think it's a complex fruit and really amazing. Aronia berries. Um, so this is from a, a farm down in Kent. It was the first commercial grower of Aronia berries. I, I, I can't imagine there are really many at all. There might be a couple that commercially grow Aronia berries. Um, it's a super fruit. People um, use them for smoothies and, and health drinks. Um, they've got a lot of health uh, benefits. And that's kind of very much how they're sold and what market they're sold into. But they're they're an interesting fruit, uh, really interesting fruit, as was the June berry and the Aronia berry. It's, for me, um, very cherry orientated in the initial sort of hit in the aroma uh, and also in, in the flavor. But it's it's quite a complex fruit. It has this kind of woodiness to it, almost like a cedar quality, uh, maybe a bit of tobacco as well. And it's, it's a... a a beer that will, will open up in the glass. So if, if you leave it, let it warm and, and actually leave it for quite a bit of time, that sort of stuff really starts coming coming through. Um, I've actually like for a bit of fun left that beer for a really long time, uh, as in like overnight open. I, I thought it was great the next day. Like it, it just completely evolved into something else. And again, you don't really associate that with beer. That's something you kind of do with, with wine. But um these beers can really open up in the glass and some of them can actually suit being left for quite a long time to let some of these tertiary aromas and flavours start coming coming out. But yeah, it was very much a test run with that fruit. As I'm sure you can tell, you know, we are trying to find some more interesting niche, different fruits that people haven't heard of. Mm. Um, so that was the kind of thinking behind the, uh, the Aronia berry. Well, it's, so it, it's come out of the bottle as a, a kind of, reddish cranberry kind of color i'd mm-hmm. say i don't know if you'd agree with me about them uh although having just googled them they um you know a little bit resembling a kind of blueberry or blueberry color but um i'm trying, trying to think of the red berry that looks like them but is the other uh, color w- w- like a red currant yeah they look like a red currant yeah. but the color of a blueberry 
yeah they're, they're sort of for me they quite look like black currants um oh yeah i can see that so and it's similar to june berries actually look like like black currants as well but um yeah they're kind of most like like a black currant i think in appearance um and that beer we did in barrels so mo- most of the obviously we did the beer in barrel the fruiting was in barrel so most of the beers we do when we fruit them the fruiting will happen in tank but we bought these quite cool upright um uh, teardrop or egg-shaped barrels mm. uh that have quite a wide lid uh, they're only 390 liters but enables us to do fruiting in barrel often mm. experimental beers like this uh or more experimental beers like this where we can you know keep the journey of the beer in oak rather than doing it from barrel into into tank which was it was quite cool to do it's it, we do it with cherries as well. They, they mostly do the fruit and fermentation in, in barrel as well. Um, it just means you can leave them in there for a lot longer period of time. You don't have to be worried about tying up a tank for a very mm. long time. So for yourself, George, do you have kind of a, a hit list of berries or a hit list of fruits that you want to get in your beers? So have you got a kind of list of ones that you're gradually making your way through? There is, are... there, is there a wall chart? You're scratching them off as you, as you do <laughs> Well, we're always on the lookout for mulberries. If anyone has any mulberry trees, um, mulberries are like the they're like the holy holy grail for us in terms of fruit that we want to use. Um, we, I mean, they obviously taste incredible and they're, are unique in their flavour, uh, but they're a very what sort of what sort of profile do they give? I can't even describe it. It's so different to any other fruit in flavour. A mulberry, uh, it's so delicious, and um, yeah, you don't know. People don't commercially grow them. Tip Tip Tree has mulberry trees that they use for a jam, but they're not interested in giving us any <laughs> at all. Obviously, um, yeah. A lot of people have them in in their gardens, particularly big houses. Traditionally, would have had mulberry trees. Um, so in our area, we've located quite a few mulberry trees. But the, the difficult thing is, as well, is whether or not they fruit well. Uh, often they don't. They have a very long season of fruiting, so you'd have to go every day to go and pick them. You could do that and then freeze them, but we don't have a big enough freezer. We don't have a freezer at all, to be honest. Um, so it would be a, a, a pain in the ass to put it put it lightly. Mm. I think what you could do is pick them over multiple years, and then finally, when you've got enough frozen, you could then make a beer with it. But um, yeah, we really want to use mulberries. I mean, they are they are such a wonderful fruit. Um, peaches as well. Um, peaches are obviously most people think they're not grown in Britain um, and they aren't really grown in Britain, but there are some people doing it and not fully commercially, but um, we're hoping maybe in the not too distant future, we might be able to get a small crop of British peaches. Wow. Uh, And that would be phenomenal because, you know, we use apricots. The apricots we get are actually grown in the Isle of Wight and they're they're fantastic. Really wonderful. I, I, up to the point of us using them, I, I didn't know you could get British apricots, which was no, just no. My, my ignorance. But um, but you can get them and you can get really high quality. And, and they they have that sort of, not tropical, but they have that flavour which doesn't you don't really associate it with being a British flavour. And if we could do the same with peaches, that would be that would be phenomenal. Well, to us anyway. Again, I don't know if anyone would actually care, but <laughs> we do. do. Do you think it would be, so would they have quite a different character to them as well, I suppose? british peaches compared to ones from overseas i don't know i don't know i mean would they be any good um i i'd be fascinated to know if you know because a good peach is is really wonderful Mm. and if if you go abroad to go and eat one 
uh, let's say nearest being France and you go and eat a, a really ripe peach in France. I mean, it is, it's absolutely wonderful, but I don't know, to be honest, um, you know, I, I thought they needed much warmer conditions, but it depends, I guess, how they're growing them. Um, and maybe a few years time. Yeah. I mean, you know, the world is getting warmer. Britain is getting warmer. So um, we'll have to see how that all goes. So one of the questions that we ask everyone that comes on um, is if you could brew any beer, what would it be? But I feel like for yourself, we might have to change it slightly. And uh, if you could pick any fruit and barrel, so spirit barrel combination, what would it be? Oh my God. Obviously you've mentioned mulberry. If it was something along those lines, then what barrel would you put alongside it or something completely different? Put me on the spot. I I and I'll let you think while I I can add a second component of if you're going to brew a traditional uh, kind of English non non exciting beer I'll say, mm. which obviously would involve brewing it uh, and going somewhere and, and using the kit. But, uh, probably just a probably just a bitter of some sort. I mean I love I love Carscale, so it's it's the thing I drink the most of probably outside of um these more niche niche beers um and something i very much enjoy drinking when i go to the the pub so probably just a mild or a bitter or something very conventional but low mm. abv delicious uh something along those lines fruit and barrel that is very interesting be quite cool to see if you could maybe and we've used a gin barrel before but if you could tie the fruit into the gin barrel or something that's more botanical orientated um we've also used freshly emptied tequila barrel which i thought was quite interesting so maybe you could look at using some more citrusy tropical orientated fruits in that again we're just british focused but if you were to go down the more let's take away borders yeah getting some fruits (laughs) from abroad maybe using them on like a tequila or a mezcal barrel or something like that could be very very interesting um i find those barrels a bit more interesting from a freshly emptied perspective like um like uh, like the tequila and, and the gin. Um, I found rum and whiskey n- not as interesting, I don't think, from a flavour profile. Mm. Um, we really like to get a sherry barrel. That's the kind of another holy grail that we're going after. The, the, the proper fresh empty cherry barrels are incredibly um, expensive, obviously. Yeah. Um, I also quite like the idea of maybe, we haven't done it yet, but um, so we use wine barrels, but they're neutral wine barrels. We never talk about the, the previous inhabitant because... It's kind of pointless in the, the 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 final sort of beer that we produce, but maybe getting a freshly emptied wine barrel and then you know refermenting one of our beers on the wine grape that has you know that the wine has I'm not really describing this very well. So let's say you have a freshly emptied barrel that held Pinot Noir, and then we refment our beer on Pinot Noir and then finish it in that barrel. That that could be quite ah, an interesting nice. thing to to play off. So you've got dual components: the 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 freshly emptied wine barrel, but also the Pinot Noir that you've re-fermented your, your beer on, that, that could be quite quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, lots lots of different things you, you can do. I mean, the world's a playground when you've got all of the fruits, all of the barrels, everything's exactly. there. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we, time. We're always after interesting barrels. So if anyone knows of any sources, let so us Yeah, add, add that to the list. Any mulberries, any mulberry trees, any yeah. barrels. I mean, maybe we'll find an old estate with uh, a yeah. you know, shed load of both. Just any interesting fruit, actually, if anyone knows. We're always after it. And the best place to drop them off to you would probably be the tap room, I imagine. Yes. Uh, recently reopened. So yeah. when can people come and visit? Uh, so we are now open every weekend, uh, Friday to Sunday, 
Friday is five till 10 p.m. with a rotating food truck. So every Friday it's different. And then Saturday and Sunday, uh, Saturday is 12 to 8 p.m., Sunday 12 to 5 p.m. And we've got a, a permanent pizza offering uh, through Sam's Pizzas, who's a, a Hitchin-based pizza maker. But he's there throughout the weekend uh, serving up some delicious uh, pizzas. So it's a lovely place and a unique place to come for a beer amongst the barrels. So if you're ever in the area or you fancy uh, a, an interesting day out, please come and visit us. I know it's definitely somewhere I'm going to have to come to whenever I get a free free weekend. I imagine actually getting people amongst the barrels is probably quite good to heat it. You can probably get them some pedals and they can start powering the heaters as well. Could do, yeah. Just fill fill the room with people. Like some sort of weird factory. <laughs> How does yeah. the um the beer offering work there then? Do you have some draft lines or is it purely bottle pours? Yeah, no, very much draft orientated. So we've got eight draft lines and that's mostly our beer. We've got a couple of guest beers on and uh and then we've got you know loads of bottles as well so normally people will drink through the draft and move on to the bottles some people will just go straight for the bottles but um of the small amount of beer that we we keg um you know we hold back stock for the for the tap room for that very reason um british people love love draft so it's mm. it's our beers are a little bit different on draft but um you know it's it's great to be able to offer people the draft beer because again you know you've got a lot of people coming into our tap room who aren't familiar with our types of beer so just to say that it's in bottle can often be quite confusing so um it's fantastic to be able to actually have the the draft as an offering and with that draft output we're moving towards the summer months are you going to be pouring at any festivals this year yes lots loads of festivals um i can't even it's i think like may june and july every single weekend we've got something oh wow um which is amazing but also you will run the tap room as well so it's kind yeah, of fun. Yeah. <laughs> i'm sure lots of other breweries experience this but um yeah we've got lots lots of festivals are there any you're particularly looking forward to not to diss the rest of them but are there any that stand like above the others oh i'm looking forward to uh these hills again we went last mm. year and it was a really lovely festival um that's the, the down, beacon uh the beacon, near, yeah. near brighton yeah yes yeah it's lewis, lewis. They, they, they they're in a big field sort of just outside of lewis but it's really nice vibe lovely environment like they treat the brewers incredibly well um and we get to stay on site and in, in like a bell tent and um they've got a fantastic selection of, of breweries so that that's great we're going back to the little earth projects so not too far away from us um that's a great weekend if anyone's looking uh, for something to do or, or keen on these types of beers it's mm. only you've got a mixed fermentation focus you can camp mm. on site so you can do the whole weekend you don't have like individual sessions it just runs for the whole uh i think it's actually friday and saturday but they've also got their lovely pubs so if you don't want any mixed firm you just want a pipe a cask or some lager or something like that and um, they've also got a great selection in there um, what else is there flock are doing a new festival that we're going to wow uh which we're looking forward to uh oh fine ales like we're going up to that which is pretty cool wow that's gonna be a a bit of a journey yeah that's gonna be a bit i think charlie will go for that one i think are you gonna try and harvest some produce whilst you're up there is that the plan not a bad idea actually annoying it's too early in the season really so um okay i don't think we'd be able to but um but yeah that looks like a, a cracking festival so we're looking forward to that one yeah we've got a few others we're also doing a few food and drink festivals around. Okay. So, um, yeah, just trying to uh, diversify, you know, who we're 
selling the beer to and spreading the word a little bit more so it's not just um, beer orientated people oh it sounds really good i'm sorry i've been very quiet the last few minutes i've just been updating my calendar with all these festivals i want to go to oh nice so if people do want to keep up to date with what festivals you are pouring out where's the best yeah. place to do that is it kind of instagram or have you got a newsletter uh yeah so we've got uh, a mailing list that you can sign up to through our website um that's probably probably a good start for the festivals um we've got our instagram i don't know we'll, we'll be promoting it when the festivals promote it um so you'll be able to find out about it then those are probably the best places to be on it uh, to be honest uh, that's where we put most of our stuff through is the mail list the website and the uh and the instagram and for those who are looking to pick up maybe some of the beers we've drunk tonight or uh, or any of the ones that we've sort of maybe teased that are coming in the future web shop is uh is pretty easy to find with with most search engines and you guys are also on bruiser yes we are yeah yeah so um so yeah web, web shop would be the best place um we normally have the most obviously the most up-to-date stuff we, we sometimes do some re-releases on older beers but to be honest we need those for the tap room so that stuff doesn't really happen that much if you really want the best selection of beer that we have and that's basically beers going back to the the very start bar four or five releases you should come to the tap room um wow you can pick up older vintages and sometimes try newer stuff that hasn't been released yet if we decide to put it on draft so that's probably the best place then web shop but yes we're also on bruiser as well and i guess actually with your location with the, the tap room it's quite an easy train out of London and then uh, either a walk or a short cycle to the to the tap room. Yeah, really easy. Yeah. So quickest train would be to Stevenage and then you probably have to get a taxi or a bus. Um, but if you go to Letchworth or Bulldog being the closest, you can walk and, or, or cycle. Um, but they're lovely walking routes that you can take. Uh, lots of taxis that are super easy to get and you can get a bus. So we are on a farm. So, you know, you normally have to drive to get there if you weren't walking or cycling. But you can get a really, really cheap taxi out of there once you've had a few beers. Um, so it's super easy to get to. Well, I think we've done a, probably enough plugging for now and we should start <laughs> talking about the glugging that's just happened. Pampe Pampero. Mm. I, I always want to say this beer name wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't want to stop drinking it. It's uh, probably the most heavily, well, definitely the most heavily fruited of the, the ones we've had tonight, but still really easy to drink for me. Tom, I don't know if you've uh, got any more detailed notes. Yeah, I have to say, when we selected the beers that we were going to be drinking this evening, I think this was the one I was most looking forward to. Um, but I think part of that was just the unknown. As soon as I see something that I've never seen or heard of before, I'm there. I just want to know what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a bit of Googling beforehand and found that it was called Chokeberries, and that just made mm -hmm. me more intrigued. Um, so, yeah, after drinking a glass of it, I still don't really know what it is, but I do enjoy it so i'm kind of i'm kind of keep going back and each time i kind of have a slightly different sip and there's something quite nice about that like i do again it's got that nice dry not too sweet finish that does keep you going back for more um on the nose i get kind of a little bit of red wine character yeah, yeah almost um a little yeah. bit of barrel on it it's quite earthy um, as well as a mm. as a fruit i don't know if you guys get that um, yeah yeah but yes the red wine note is is also a, a accurate um pick out to eat the fruit it's like it has this like earthiness it's quite sort of Fla yeah flavor wise i get kind of in my mind i'm thinking cranberry is probably the closest thing i can think 
having tasted that might be like this. Not sure um, though if that's the fruit or just the acidity from the beer itself. That's the yeah. It's it's hard to know because most fruits you try and then you have them in the beer, so you can kind of reverse engineer what parts mm-hmm. the beer, what parts the fruit. For us, this is. I mean, we can sort of get the beer from the first beer we had, which was a similar blend. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I I've really enjoyed the puzzle. And one thing I did want to ask about this: so it's Pampero twenty twenty two. Does that mean this is a beer that you're gonna be releasing iterations of in the future? Are there plans to, or is this kind of it now for this one? Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's a very interesting fruit, but it is kind of a special. We we may do it again in the future. I don't think we'll do it this season, but because we kind of kind of decided what we're gonna do. But yes, I mean. Th- the year thing is is for that very reason, you know. So you know, you know. Then if you're drinking one in the future, you have something to compare it against. Yeah. Um, never say never, I guess, with the aronia berries. But I guess for now we've tried this one. We'll probably move on and then maybe come back to it. I mean, there's some fruits that are kind of going to be a, a core, if you know, if, if that can even work with our stuff, and that will be the stuff like the raspberries, the blackberries, the apricots, the the plums, even though there'll be certain varieties with, within them that we feel are the best for our beer and then we'll use those over and over. But because we're trying lots of different varieties, you're getting a different outcome from those varieties. So you can kind of make different beers with the different varieties that you're using. Um, mm. And I like sort of, we're blending more with fruits now. So blending two fruits together just because they either work together or you're just adding in kind of another layer of complexity to the beer. So that kind of opens up a world of more beers that we can we can bring out. So maybe the Aronia could be blended with something in future or it would just be its own standalone. Um, I'm not sure, but, you know, we can kind of do whatever because we can always work off those base beers and then just experiment with the, with the fruit. Well, we'll have to look forward to seeing some of that in the future. George, I've immensely enjoyed the beers this evening as well as the chat. I always love it when I learn more than I speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I speak quite a lot, so uh, I'm glad that this could be one of those evenings. But uh, yeah, got to thank you for coming on and uh, look forward to drinking as many beers of yours in the future as I can. Cheers. Great. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you.